I want, I want you to turn in your imagination, okay? I want you to turn on your imagination, and I want you to turn your imagination toward this remarkable experience that the disciples had with Jesus, starting in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. The scene begins with a cacophony of sound and action. There are thousands of people. They're in awe at Jesus' miracle-working power. He had taken five little slices of Wonder Bread and a couple of sardines, and he had fed thousands. And suddenly, my Bible says in verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, can you see this in your, your imagination? Can you see it? Can you hear it? Just think about this room after our service today, what's going to happen, right? Just a hundred or so people, how loud and rambunctious it's going to be. And all of, can you imagine thousands of people, this incredible miracle? There's all kinds of conversations going on. And Jesus in the middle of it, if it's a movie, right? The camera lens zooms in and there's the kind of center of attention getting those closest to him and hustling them off and saying, you've got to hurry up right now. Get in this boat and leave. You see, the people in the crowd, they were getting really excited and they were saying some very specific things. For them... Their hope is here. Finally, they have a freedom fighter who will lead them in revolution to cast off the evil Roman Empire. And they are fomenting a rebellion. And Jesus is getting the disciples out of that context. Because, frankly speaking, they're no help. Because they are as confused as the crowds. They're not calming the crowd down. They're buying into this language, into this agenda. They're beginning to see Jesus like the one they've been waiting for. They've substituted their agenda for Jesus' agenda. And they don't even know they've co-opted him into their own image. Jesus needs to defuse the situation before a riot begins. So he quickly removes the disciples... And then he dismisses the crowds. Now watch Jesus. Look at verse 46. Can you see him? He's dismissed the crowds, the disciples in the boat. And can you see him in your imagination? He's climbing up a mountain by himself. He's getting alone. It gets dark. That's what verse 47 tells us. And now you should see him there on the mountain in the dark, alone, praying. Now in Mark's gospel... We see Jesus alone at prayer only three times. And each time it's night. It's a lonely place. And Jesus is working in prayer. He's laboring to confirm his own understanding of the Father's will. And to seal his obedience to that will. And each time in Mark's gospel that we find Jesus alone at prayer, his disciples are removed from him. And they not only are away from him geographically, they are away from him relationally. They've misunderstood his mission. 
Sure enough, when we read in verse 47, we see the separation. There's Jesus alone at prayer. And there are the disciples a long way off in the middle of the lake. Now, my translation says the boat was out on the sea. You know, this was originally written in Greek. We still have the Greek manuscripts. A better translation was a, the boat was in the middle of the lake. Now, notice the distance. We know that the distance was actually three to four miles between Jesus and the middle of the lake. Three or four miles at night in darkness. A very windy, stormy night. This is the distance between the disciples and Jesus. They are miles away from understanding who he is and what he's about. And in Mark's gospel, when the disciples get physically away from Jesus, not only are they relationally away from him, but every time they fall into distress. Jesus on the mountain in prayer. I love this part of the story. He turns and with supernatural vision, three or four miles in darkness, And with supernatural insight, this word see, S-E-E, in Mark's gospel, oftentimes you find Jesus seeing the disciples. And it's not about he just knows where they are. It's he knows what's going on in their hearts. So when it says, and Jesus saw them, it's this supernatural vision, this supernatural insight. And just like the story we saw on Ash Wednesday with Jesus feeding, just like that, It is supernatural compassion. He's got a compassion that he looks through the darkness that they're surrounded by. He looks across the distance and he sees them with compassion. He sees that they, what does it say in verse 48, are making headway painfully. The Greek language is so much more vivid. Literally, they are being tortured in the rowing. That's what he sees. It's the same word for torture that's used when John is writing this gospel. Christians are being tortured. And it's the same word being used in that day for the people he's writing to for what they're going through from the Roman government. And he uses this word to provoke in the readers their imagination to see that Jesus sees them as they're being tortured by these circumstances. It's not that they're in danger of drowning. No, that was the storm back in chapter 4 where they're about to drown and they get mad at Jesus because he's in the boat sleeping and they're going down. The problem here is that the wind is so much against them they can't make any progress. It's been something like 10 hours and they're barely to the middle of a lake that in normal circumstances, even when weather is bad, they could make in 6 to 8 hours. They're just... Their journey is being absolutely frustrated. And when we get to verse 48, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, you need to know that in the Old Testament saturated atmosphere of Mark's gospel, there is more involved in Jesus's walking on the water than just an astounding feat of power. And for you to see this correctly in your imagination, to see what I think Dolly was getting at in his painting, 
For you to see this, your imagination must be informed, deeply informed by the Old Testament and by this deep and rich relationship between Mark's gospel and the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, only God can walk on water. We heard this in our passage that that Ben read from Job. Job 38, do you remember the 16th verse? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Here is the one true God reminding Job of things only God can do. It came up in the psalm that Esther led us in. Psalm 77, verse 19. Your way, talking about the one and only God, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footsteps were unseen. You see, in walking on water toward the disciples, Jesus is walking where only God can walk. It's entirely different if you wrote this story and your imagination wasn't deeply shaped by the Old Testament. But look, any story, you can never know enough in any given moment to interpret an event. You always have to backfill. You always have to assume. Mark is assuming that you know the Old Testament. Jesus is walking where only God can walk. God's power to tread the waves is a sign of his sovereignty over all of creation. But then Mark messes with our imagination. He intrudes upon the scene. The last phrase of verse 48. Did you notice it was weird? He he meant to pass them by. Like, doesn't that feel like a shift in the logic of the story? Hasn't the whole story felt like he has compassion on them, he sees them, so he's going to them? And now all of a sudden, now look, either you stand in judgment over Mark and think Mark just got it wrong, or his pen slipped, or he didn't, or he was mixing together various stories and just, or you humble yourself and you say, you know, such a strange, incongruous detail that doesn't really fit. Maybe I should stop. Maybe my imagination should be provoked. Maybe I should figure this thing out. I mean, Jesus' whole sea walk is motivated by concern for the disciples. So what does passing them by have to do with a compassionate response? Did Mark lose the plot? No, he didn't. If we don't see this phrase in all of its power, it's because we've lost the plot. It's because we don't know how to read the Bible. You see, this plot, remember, is saturated in a plot that's already going on, that starts in Genesis and goes to Revelation. This is saturated in the story of God's way with His people. This phrase, He meant to pass them by, is pregnant with meaning in the Old Testament. This phrase is used in the Old Testament of a rare moment of God's revealing of himself to his people. Look at Mount Sinai. God had just rescued the people of Israel from captivity in Egypt. Moses Moses asked, God, I want to see you. And God says, Exodus 33, 19, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. 
And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face you shall not see. If you don't know the Old Testament, if you you can't know what's happening with Jesus and you can think that Mark, the author, got sloppy or made some sort of mistake and you can stand in judgment on the Bible. This notion of God passing by in order to reveal himself. It's not just with Moses. It's Elijah on Mount Horeb when, when God passes by and reveals himself. And it's in Job. Listen to this verse from Job chapter 9. God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea when he passes by me. I cannot see him when he goes. I cannot perceive him. This is all over the Old Testament. These are the most important stories to the Jewish people. This, he meant to pass him by, is not free of charge. You see, Jesus walking on the water to his disciples is a revelation of God's glory. The glory that he shares with the Father. And of the compassion that he extends. Toward Jesus' followers. In John's gospel, John has Jesus declaring that he is the Son of God. Whereas in Mark's gospel, Mark has him showing that he is the Son of God. The one who calmed the storm back in chapter 4 is the one who now appears in the midst of the storm. And this one, this is Yahweh in the flesh. The one And only true God. Now you may not agree with this claim. You don't have to agree with the claim. But at least recognize that Mark the Arthur is making the claim. About Jesus. And so Jesus' desire to pass by his disciples. Is a compassionate desire. To reveal to them who he is. That he alone is God. However, verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they didn't get it. Instead of seeing the one and only true God treading on the waves of the sea, they're filled with terror and incomprehension. So Jesus stops. And if you thought I was making a stretch by the whole walking on water equals God's claim, the link between what Jesus says here and Exodus is unmistakable. Now, in the Old Testament, when God shows up and reveals himself, people get afraid and God responds by encouraging them to not be afraid. So look what Jesus says. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, what's really remarkable about that statement, it's the the middle of the three statements. Be of good courage. Be brave. It is I, do not be afraid. The middle statement, it is I. Again, if you're not looking at this in Greek, you're at a bit of a disadvantage. Literally, Jesus says, ego, eme. Which literally translated is, I am. Now, this is the name that God gives himself. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked God, 
what is your name? He says, I am. So Jesus says, take heart. I am. You need to know, I am the one and only God. The God that has been revealing himself to this people for millennia has come in flesh. And that is who I am. I am not only walking where only God can walk and saying what only God can say. I am taking God's name. Do you see it? Can you see the disciples alone in the darkness failing? And God himself comes to them. And in the sheer wonder of his presence, unlike with Moses, he doesn't hide Moses. He doesn't hide the disciples. He turns to them. And he speaks his name to them. The one and only true God. Be brave. I am is here. Don't be afraid. All of the other gods are non-gods. There are no other gods. The one and only creator of the universe is treading his waters. It's in the midst of the storms and the hardships and the adversities that Jesus reveals himself to us. Don't you know that? Haven't so many of you experienced that? That in the storms and adversities and the brutal darkness of this world we live in, our human self-sufficiency is revealed for what it is. Insufficiency. We can't get across the lake. We can't make it. We can't accomplish. And when the defenses of our human pride are breached, sometimes we see God's presence among us. Even if at first it is troubling and perhaps terrifying. And in these moments, our fear may stand in the way of seeing Jesus for who he really is. But the good news is that Jesus stops and comes to us anyway. In the face of our fear, in the face of our disbelief, in the face of our failings. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. I mean, this is an amazing image. Here is the world's rightful king, long exiled, now returning. And he is striding the garden and he is putting things to right. He gets in the boat and it gets calm. His presence alone is enough to make the wind cease. He is the absolute master. Of every element. And confronted with this awesome appearance of Jesus walking on the water. Dolly gets it right. It's terrifying. The majesty of God, of God's authority, of God's power. The disciples are completely, what does it say? Astounded. It's interesting that the last time they were in a boat with Jesus in a storm. It was a storm that scared him witless. But this time, it's the one who treads the waves that terrifies them. It's Jesus who causes their alarm. Jesus overcomes the storm. And yet, while the waters are no longer disturbed, the disciples are profoundly disturbed. Why? 
You should ask that. Why? In verse 51, they were utterly astounded. Why? For they did not understand about the loaves. Again, it feels weird, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel weird narratively? The narrative logic feels like it should say they didn't understand what in the world just happened. But they didn't understand about the loaves. That's why they can't handle this moment. They didn't get it. Why? Because they didn't get the miracle of the loaves. Again, either Mark doesn't know what he's doing or he does and you don't. (laughs) They don't understand the miracle of the loaves. This is the one and only God. We looked at this Wednesday night. This is the one and only God standing in the wilderness preparing a feast for his people. And the last time in the story of the Bible, there was a major water miracle and a major food miracle was when God led the people on the exodus across the Red Sea and fed them with manna in the wilderness. They should have expected this to be coming because the Lord of the banquet has just shown up on the scene. Clearly, if they had pondered the praises of God in Psalm 107, they might have seen the connection. Psalm 107, for he satisfied the thirsty, filled the hungry with good things. And then what does it say after that? He spoke and roused a storm wind. The same narrative movement. Satisfying, filling, feeding, storm. And then what? It tossed the waves on high. And then what? Hushed the storm to a murmur. The waves of the sea were stilled. What are they missing? Why do they keep missing this? What we're told in the last phrase of verse 52, it's because they weren't smart enough. Is that what your Bible says? It's because they didn't know the Old Testament. Is that what you're... No. It's because their hearts were hardened. And that's where you and I are. Yikes, the last time this phrase, hard hearts, was used in Mark's gospel was in chapter 3, verse 5, when Jesus is in a synagogue and he heals a man with a deformed hand. And guess who has the hard hearts? The Pharisees. They were resisting the work of God. And now he looks at the disciples and he describes them in the same way. This is remarkably strong language to use for what appears to us. Be honest, it appears to be an easy mistake to make. I mean, how many of you would have made the same mistake? I mean, on the one hand, it looks like the disciples are going through the natural slowness of ordinary people adjusting to the presence of the extraordinary in their midst. But but don't miss Mark's point. His point is that faith is not the inevitable result of knowing about Jesus. It is not even the inevitable result of being with Jesus. Faith is not something that happens automatically or evolves inevitably because you're raised in the church. Faith is a choice and a decision. And in the Gospel of Mark, it is more often than not A decision that is made in the face of struggle and fear. Growing as a Christian, discipleship is more threatened by your lack of faith and your hardness of heart than the circumstances you're going through. If you are blaming your reduction in Christianity to a tough time, you are missing Mark's point. Your faith is more endangered by your lack of faith. Your growth in Christ is more endangered by your lack of faith than it is cancer 
or divorce or terrible loneliness or incredible suffering. That is Mark's point. It was a willful blindness. They were refusing to open their hearts fully to what God was doing in their midst. For disciples, that was their problem. He traces it. They didn't understand the lows because they had hard hearts. See, we want to blame it on anything else, don't we? We want to make... We, we refuse to let belief be a moral category. But Mark is making a very radical claim that belief or unbelief is a moral choice. It's not a mood. It's a steadfast... A great German theologian said, faith is a steadfast nine, which is no, in the presence of whatever you're facing. It's a commitment to say that's not reality. Now, there's a very important detail I've skipped over. Several times I've pointed out that the Old Testament saturated atmosphere of Mark is critical to this passage. It's crucial for us hearing what God is saying to you and to me through this passage. Now, in the Old Testament, one more thing you've got to know. There is a strong association between water, especially the unruly waters of the sea, and death. In fact, Mark has this in mind. We know it because in just a few chapters, he has Jesus talking about his own impending crucifixion and death, and he describes it as being dunked under the waters. He calls it my impending baptism. Now look at this. Mark is in Rome, somewhere in the 50s A.D., 20 or 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He's with Peter. He's telling the story of Jesus with boldness, right in the teeth of the capital of the Roman Empire. He's trying with every ounce of energy he has, right in the face of persecution, to convert the epicenter of the world. And he's saying things about Jesus that are breathtaking. That Jesus alone is God. He's he's saying these things that Jesus walked on water as a foreshadowing of Jesus trampling on death itself. Jesus conquering our last enemy. He conquered death. Jesus Christ is the sovereign creator God of the entire universe. And every element is under his dominion, including death. There is no other God. And he sees you in your distress, surrounded by darkness so far from peace, in bondage to sin and death. And Mark is saying to his audience that he's writing this gospel to Christ has trampled death and he offers us his peace. And we must choose to respond in faith to that God. We must choose faith. In the face of your struggle and your fear, whatever you're going through, choose faith. Will you be willfully blind? Will you be steadfast in your refusal to open your heart 
to, to what God is doing in Christ Jesus. In spite of the distance. In spite of the fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus turns to you. And he sees you across the distance. In the darkness of your own turmoil and pain and bondage and in compassion. He will come to you. And get this. Just like in verses 53 to 56. As Jesus moves around the countryside and the cities and the villages. And the same power that he displayed in walking on the water. This same storm of divine grace is roaring into the villages. It roars into our midst. And we are invited Mark is writing his gospel with an ideology, with an agenda. He is inviting you and I to believe this totalizing claim. And he is inviting you and I to put ourselves in the place of these frantic crowds and to just beg for the opportunity to touch him. Because in touching him, we are saved. Now, how do we do that? Well, in Mark's gospel right here, what he's saying, get this, you do it in the Eucharist. That's what he's saying here. You see, there's a mystery in this passage. Remember, Mark does not say that the disciples had a problem with Jesus walking on the water. Their problem was with understanding the miracle of the loaves. It wasn't some incomprehension of the sea walking. The issue is the loaves. And like we saw on Wednesday night, in the loaves, Jesus took the bread, blessed the bread, broke the bread, and gave the bread. A string of four verbs that are the same four verbs Jesus uses a few chapters later in the Last Supper. What is Mark saying to us? He's saying this is the key. That God, he's saying to the Christians in Rome, you feel like Jesus is away from you, but he still comes to us. He is still physically present among us. Every time we gather and break the bread and bless the bread and give the bread and give every time we do this thing together, God himself strides into our midst and tramples the distance and really, really, really gives himself to us. And if we would choose to come to him in faith, oh, if we could just touch him, well, you can. That's Mark's point. You can. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes?